I would invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, and we'll begin actually at verse 7. So that we remember where we are in this story. Acts chapter 6, beginning at verse 7. Well, you'll notice that the, uh, the text for the sermon this morning is a rather lengthy one. We're not going to read at the outset all the way through the end of chapter 7. We'll be able to read from sections of Stephen's speech before the Sanhedrin uh, defending himself uh, throughout uh, different points during the sermon. Just uh, before, uh, we'll read from some of the highlights or the bookends of the story. We'll begin at Acts chapter 6, verse 7, and then read through chapter 7, verse 1, and then uh, turn a couple of pages to verse uh, 51 of chapter 7 and read to the end of, of that chapter. This is God's holy word. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. And now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from the members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. So then they secretly persuaded some of the men to say, we have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. And all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest asked him, are these charges true? And over a couple of pages, if you're using the Bibles and the benches, to chapter 7, verse 51. This is the conclusion of Stephen's answer to the question, are these charges true? He says, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered Him, you who have received the law that was put into effect through angels but have not obeyed it. And when they heard this, they were furious they gnashed their teeth at Him, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus, standing at the right hand of God, look, He said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. 
And at this they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And we had said this, he fell asleep. So far the reading of God's holy word. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ and friends. We have set before us in this story a crime and a charge and a defense and a verdict. These four events will structure our understanding of what is in this story and our application of this story to our own lives. We have a crime, we have a charge, we have a defense and we have a verdict. Let's start with the crime. What is the crime in this story? Well, verses 7 through 10 of chapter 6 basically reveal the crime. Verse 7, the Word of God was spreading and the number of disciples in Jerusalem was increasing rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. The church was growing, and the church was growing at the expense even of the priests who were working in the temple. These priests were deciding to follow the direction of the apostles, to follow the apostolic ministry, to join this group called the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ, or as it was known at this time, the Way. And they were starting to obey the commandments and the structures and the teaching of the apostles more than those priests who were higher up than them in the temple structure and in the temple complex and in the temple economy. And that was becoming a problem. And you remember why it was, especially that a number of the priests started to become obedient to the Christian faith and to the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ and to Christ Himself. It was because the deacons had just been established. And we wanted to see the power of the diaconal work in the early church leading to the conversion of some of the leaders, the priests. Because after all, wasn't the temple designed not only as a place of worship of the Lord, but that was the center of Old Testament religion. And the priests, many of them were charged to watch out and to help those who were poor and oppressed and to provide for them. But instead, what? The priest and the temple construct and the temple economy was oppressing all of the poor people. And the priests were seeing the diaconal work that Christ was doing through those whom He had appointed in the early church, they were recognizing very likely that nothing like this was going on in the temple construct. This kind of humility and love and service and compassion for the poor was evident so powerfully and wonderfully in the Christian church that they could not help but be convicted that this is obviously a demonstration of the the truth of God, because it's displaying the mercy of God, which we should have been practicing all along. And a number of these priests are converting uh, to the faith. And one of these deacons was especially powerful as a deacon in the early church to effect this gracious, compassionate, benevolent, diaconal ministry of Christ. His name is Stephen in verse 8. He's a man full of God's grace and power, and he happens to be doing great wonders and miraculous signs also among the people. 
Not only is he helping to supervise the distribution of food to the widows so that none of them are neglected, not only is he helping to check people out to make sure they have true need and then to distribute the benevolence money which is given by God's people to the church to help those who have need. Not only is he administering that, but the Lord has gifted him especially also to work miraculous signs and wonders. Almost for certain, Stephen was healing people just like the apostles were. Amazement, astounding, crippled people coming and being able to walk. People with lifelong diseases and illnesses just like Christ healed them, just like the apostles were healing them. So now Stephen was healing them, performing these great miraculous signs and wonders. And just quickly, in case you're wondering if it's odd that a deacon, as opposed to, say, an apostle, was performing these signs and wonders in the early church, don't let it surprise you, because as we read on in the New Testament... The great miraculous signs and wonders were not only performed by the apostles or even early on the ministers of the Word and the elders appointed in the church, but many of the people in the church, even if they didn't hold any church office, like the office of deacon, many people in the church were also gifted with supernatural gifts to just demonstrate the power of the Spirit in the life of the early church. So it shouldn't surprise us that Uh, Stephen, just because he was a deacon, is performing miraculous signs and wonders. It is all a demonstration of the power of Christ at work. Look how his work is described in verse 8. He's a man full of God's grace and power. And that's exactly what Stephen is displaying when he is healing people. It is the grace and the power of Christ working through him. When he is healing people, just like when the apostles are healing people, it is a testimony that God is coming to a fallen human race that is miserable and helpless and that he is not forsaking them and condemning them further, but he is giving them grace and salvation. And I heal you from your disease in order to what? Verify to you that when the apostles say the glorification is coming, it is true that just as I have been gracious to heal you temporarily from your earthly disease and suffering, so then you may know for certain that the glorification is coming. That was the function of these miraculous signs and powers. But for Stephen, since he was a deacon, it's probably a good idea to include that his working of miraculous signs and wonders served even another purpose. It's connected to that. Stephen is going around giving money to people who are in desperate need. He's providing food to people in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ on behalf of the congregation and saying to them, listen, Christ loves you and He has provided for you because He cares for you. And He has united His church family together to Him by His Spirit and they are the vehicle that has been used to collect these monies and to show you mercy. And I want you to know, as surely as you receive these monies, as surely as you receive this food, you will have everything that will come in the glorification and you will lack nothing. This is an extension of the mercy of Christ to you. But you see, some people might doubt that just because they receive some charity in this life from the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, that that says anything about what God thinks of them. They might as well just get charity from the local community center or from a friend. But you see, when Stephen is performing miraculous signs and wonders at the same time as he is saying to people, look, this little money that I give to you on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ is a testimony of His favor to you, then they can't deny that. They have to see, wow, this is amazing. Here's a man who's telling me that the Lord is being gracious to me by providing something to me, and here he is performing miraculous signs and wonders in the power of God. I cannot help but conclude that the grace and the power of God has met me in my life, and now I have hope, 
and believing in the law and the gospel that the apostles are preaching, which is supported by the diaconal work of Stephen, gives me great hope and dignity, and I am encouraged, and people were flocking into the church when this was happening. People were drawn to this grace and to this power, this truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the crime. This is the crime. Opposition, verse 9, arose. The members of the synagogue of the freedmen, these are these Jewish by blood, but slaves in different regions of the Roman Empire who were then freed, put in their time, and then moved to the Jerusalem area and established synagogues to worship with those who had come from similar areas and similar economic socioeconomic circumstances. So here they find themselves in town. Of course, they're allied with the Old Covenant Jewish temple complex, and uh, these men begin to argue with Stephen. They argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit uh, by whom he spoke. There's no crime here. And there's a, a supposed crime. This opposition arises. The majority that's in power, political power, the government here, decides that there is a crime. But to notice, it's very obvious there's no crime. They could not stand, verse 10, up against His wisdom or the Spirit by whom He spoke. That's an interesting translation. They could not stand up against. The word, you could translate it, they could not resist His wisdom or the Spirit by whom He spoke. Not meaning that they were drawn to it. I can't resist it. I want to embrace it. No, exactly the opposite. Their fervent desire was to overthrow everything that Stephen was saying and doing. But the point here is, they could not do it. Another use of this word resist or stand up against in the Scripture. This will help you understand it. One In the course of the Apostle Paul discussing the control of God in the world, he said, God controls all things. He even made... Paul gives the example. He even made Pharaoh's heart hard so that Pharaoh would disobey him. And somebody says, Paul says, one of you will say to me, why does God still blame people if no one can resist His will? In other words, if God decides that somebody's going to act a certain way and then God punishes them for acting in a way that's not in accord to how He has revealed He wants them to live their life, then how can God blame somebody for acting that way for who resists His will? And what does resist mean right there. Resist means who can go against it? Who can give who can change it or who can give and who can poke any holes in it? Who can do something contrary to what it is? And that's exactly what these men of the synagogue of the freedmen were trying to do against Stephen's preach against Stephen's diaconal ministry, against his performing of great wonders and miraculous signs and of His witness when He spoke of the truth of Christ and what they're trying to do against the message of the apostles. They're trying to find some kind of hole in it. Somewhere where they can say, oh, okay, that's where we got you, that's where you're wrong, that's where you're lying. And we're still correct and you ought to submit yourselves to us. But they could not do it. The Scripture is very clear. They could not stand up against His wisdom or the Spirit by whom He spoke. They're contending with the Lord Himself. Obviously, there's no crime here. They're doing nothing wrong. They're speaking only that which is true. It is full of grace and power. There is no crime. But nonetheless, there is a charge. 
there is a charge. They come up with something, even though there's nothing there. And we see that in verse 12. They stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen. They bring him before the Sanhedrin. So they're going to levy this charge before the Sanhedrin. They produce false witnesses who testified and here it comes. This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. We have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. There's the charge. The charge is right there and there's two aspects to it. The fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place, meaning the temple, and against the law of Moses. Capital L could be. The fellow never stopped speaking against the temple and he never stopped speaking against the Mosaic law. Therefore, he is a blasphemer. He is a false teacher and he ought to be stopped. That's the charge. And we've already seen that there's no crime committed by Stephen. That's further bolstered by the fact that in verse 11 we see these men secretly persuading some men to make up things. We heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. Stephen did not do that. He never did that. Wouldn't be surprised if these synagogue of freedmen were greasing the palms of these witnesses that they were gathering together, these men to start spreading rumors so that they would have a basis for the charge, and that's exactly what they're left with in verse 13. But it's very important to understand exactly what the charge is and what exactly makes the charge false. Look at verse 13. The charge is the fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law, and they come to that conclusion because we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down. Well, it's not that the church wasn't saying that the temple wouldn't be destroyed. I mean, this is important to remember. The apostles were preaching exactly what Jesus had taught them. Luke 21, verse 5, some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Jesus said it, and the apostles were preaching it, and Stephen was giving witness to it if people asked him about it. The church was teaching that the temple would be destroyed. Jesus said it himself. And it wasn't a false charge either because Stephen wasn't really saying that Jesus would change the customs of Moses handed down to them because the church was teaching that. They certainly were teaching that. In fact, these customs of the Mosaic Law of which the false witnesses are are raising here, these customs were only in effect now at this point in the story for a continuing short while in the transition between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant and then they're going to be done away with as you see very clearly later throughout the book of Acts and in the rest of the writings of the New Testament, this was only these customs of Moses were only going on for a time. So the church was teaching at this time. Stephen was also giving witness to the fact that the temple would be destroyed and that the customs would be changed. Well, what makes the accusation false then? Well, what makes the accusation false is, in verse 13, this fellow never stops speaking against 
this holy place and against the law. What's the presupposition there? The presupposition is that if you believe that the temple is going to be destroyed and if you believe that the customs of the law are going to be changed and that means that you're speaking against the temple and against the law. What do we mean by that? Well, Stephen launches this long defense of this charge, but let me just give it to you at the front and then we'll defend it from his speech. The idea is simply this, that far from speaking against the temple when you say that Jesus is going to destroy it, when Stephen is witnessing to that fact, far from speaking against the temple, you are honoring the whole institution of the temple and its design in the first place because it was never designed to be an eternal temple. It was always designed temporarily to be in place until the true temple came, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're going to honor the temple and speak in favor of the temple and all of the ceremonies that accompany it, then you are going to be very glad and rejoicing when Jesus comes to replace that whole system. And it's the same thing with all of the customs of the Law of Moses. They were never meant to be designed to be enforced permanently, forever, forever, forever. It was a temporary Old Covenant Law system that was set in place until the seed should come to whom the promise to Abraham had been made. And if you want to honor the Old Testament law and the customs of that law, then when the one comes who fulfills that law and sets aside those ceremonial customs, puts them away. If you want to honor the law, then honor the one to whom it was pointing. That's what Stephen is saying. It is not me speaking against the temple and the customs of the law when I say that they're done away with in Christ. In fact, you're the ones, if you want to cling to this old covenant law system and this temple, you're the ones speaking against the temple and the law. That's the argument. That's why this is a false charge. There's no crime, but there is a charge. It's a false one. And then there's Stephen's defense. There's Stephen's defense. And Stephen, this is a very long defense. This is not a sermon. Keep in mind the context of Stephen's address here. It is a speech. It's a defense speech as he's being prosecuted in the Sanhedrin. Are these charges true? And verse 2 of chapter 7, to this he replied. And he makes two points throughout the course of his defense. And if it's uh, really a, a long lesson that Stephen gives to the Sanhedrin in the history of redemption, but it has two main ideas that hold all of his information together, and we're not going to look at all of it, certainly. But there's two main ideas, and the first defense that he gives is that our God, let me remind you, Sanhedrin, our God, the God of our fathers, never, never permanently tied himself and those to whom uh, those who belonged to him to the physical land and nation state of Israel and neither did he bind himself ever permanently and his people to the temple. If you just think about the history of redemption, if you read the Bible, Stephen says to the Sanhedrin, you will realize that God never permanently bound himself to this physical land and this nation state of Israel and he never bound his people to that physical land in the nation state, nor did he ever bind himself and his people, obviously, to this physical temple that's in Jerusalem. So look at verses 2 through 6. This is his first point. To this he replies, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. 
the God of glory, appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia. Stephen starts with a very interesting note in the history of redemption, and we shouldn't overlook it. He points out the fact that Abraham comes out of Mesopotamia, out of the land of the Chaldeans. Was Abraham Jewish? Well, you see, that's a very strange question because there was no such thing as Jewish. There was no such thing as Israel before God called Abraham. God made the nation of Israel. Stephen is making this point to the Israelites. Look, don't get so excited about Jewish nationality being the proof of your acceptance of God because remember, we're a nation that didn't exist. Our great forefather Abraham, you know the one who everybody looks to and says is the one who is right with God. He is our spiritual father. He comes from Mesopotamia. He comes from the land of Chaldeans where there was no Israel. And more than that, keep reading. After he was sold in verse 4, he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran after the death of his father. God sent him to this land where you are now living, but he gave even Abraham no inheritance here, not even a foot of ground. So even our father Abraham, by the way, who wasn't a Jew until God made that a category... Even our great father Abraham did not have any inheritance in this land in which you now live. And is somehow, are you better and more accepted in the sight of God because you are in the nation state, the physical land of Israel, more than our father Abraham? Well, no, that's ridiculous. And what about God's people in Egypt? Verse 6, God spoke to him in this way, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. So what about our forefathers who were enslaved in Egypt? They weren't in the nation-state established of Israel, they weren't in the land of Canaan. What, now they weren't part of God's people? The point is, God has never permanently tied himself and those who belong to him to the physical land, the nation-state of Israel. Neither did he bind himself and his people to the temple. What about in verse 15? Jacob. Where did Jacob die? One of the great patriarchs. Jacob went down into Egypt where he and our fathers died. Jacob died outside of the land of promise. Is he somehow outside of the family of God? No, you see, because God never ties his blessings to this political land, this nation state of Israel, nor this temple. How about the tabernacle bouncing around? If you look in verse 44 here of chapter 7. I want you to know, Stephen says, our forefathers had the tabernacle of testimony with them in the desert. They had the presence of God with them, not in the land of Canaan, not in Israel. They had the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God with them in the desert. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. Oh, and by the way, the earthly manifestation of God's presence in the tabernacle, that was only patterned after something that came before it eternally in the heavens. It was just a mere copy of that on the earth. It was nothing permanent. Verse 45, Having received the tabernacle, our fathers under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land the nations. A God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, 
who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide the dwelling place for the God of Jacob. You know David, the man after God's own heart, who of all people would be the one that God would look to, and if the temple was all that important, David would be the one to build it. But what happened? No. David didn't even get to build the temple. It was Solomon, verse 47, who built the house for him. However, even, verse 48, the Most High doesn't live in houses made by men. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will be my resting place? In other words, look, the temple, though important for old covenant purposes and the service of God's worship as He wanted it before Christ would come, is not something permanent. The blessing of God is not tied to the nation-state of Israel, certainly not tied to this temple. It's tied to the true temple, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you reject Him, Stephen is saying, then you are rejecting, you are the one speaking against the earthly temple, and you are the one speaking against the customs of Moses. It's not me. second line of defense here is if our own history has taught us anything... Stephen is saying to the Sanhedrin that it's, if our own history has taught us anything, it's that many of those who are supposedly in favor of the Old Testament law and supposedly following all the customs of Moses, they care about it so much, when the real meaning of the Mosaic law is revealed to them, they refuse to listen to it and to believe it. And what they do, if history has taught us anything, Stephen says, look at your own history. What did they do to the true prophets? They kill them. Instead of being convicted by the Mosaic Law, they turn it into this thing where they think that they're better than everybody else in the world because they have the law given to them. Instead of being convicted by the clear commands of the law and seeing their own need for the Savior and looking forward to the One who is typified and shadowed through all of the ceremonies and sacrifices of the law and seeing the redemption of Christ coming through the blood of the sacrifices and all of these beautiful things, they don't see any of that. What they see is the law is something that shows us that God accepts us above all other people because we deserve it. And when anybody like the prophet would rise to tell us, actually, no, you're, you're really breaking the law all the time and you better see that you're doing it and you better look for the Savior and you better repent from all of your sin and oppression. When anybody rises up as a prophet in the history of Israel do that, what do you do, Stephen says? You kill them. You kill them over and over and over again. Verse 8 of chapter 7. After Abraham's given the covenant of circumcision, Jacob, through the course of time, becomes the father of the twelve patriarchs. But what happens? Jacob... The patriarchs has his uh, children and then the patriarchs become jealous of Joseph. And he says, this is the beginning of the pattern that happens in Israel. God has his eye on someone, in this case, Joseph, and everybody else in Israel become jealous of him and persecute him. They sell him as a slave into Egypt. When God is with somebody, then our fathers persecute them. And that's exactly what you're doing right now, Stephen says. And it's the same thing with Moses later, verse 25, chapter 7. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The man who was mistreating, verse 27, the other man pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And when Moses heard this, he fled to Midian and he settled as a foreigner and had two sons.
That happened in his calling stage of his ministry. They did not believe Moses. They persecuted him, even though he was the one that God was raising to deliver them. And the same thing happened later in his life, in the course of his ministry, verse 36. He led them out of Egypt and did wonders and miraculous signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the desert. And did the people believe him? No. Verse 39, our fathers refused to obey him and said they rejected him and their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us and as for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't even know what has happened to him. That time they made an idol in the form of the calf. And it goes on and on and on. The point is this, that every time in the history of redemption, God raises somebody up to speak the truth, to preach the law, to preach the gospel, to perform the, the mighty acts of God in redemption, you trash them. And you're doing the same thing here. If history has taught us anything, it's the majority of Israelites who think that they're being obedient to the law and honoring the law and honoring Moses and honoring the temple that are actually trashing the law and the temple. That's what's happened. What Stephen's saying, you should know that. Stephen himself, in his own body, while he is speaking, gives evidence that he is exactly like Moses, being used by God in the midst of a hostile, disobedient, stubborn, rebellious generation. You remember at the end of chapter 6, all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. He was glowing. Why? Because he was speaking with the glory of God. These were the words of God that he was speaking to them. Stephen here was inspired by the Holy Spirit to give faithful commentary on the Old Testament record to apply to this situation. He was radiant, just like Moses was radiant when he came down with the two tablets of the law. Exodus 34, 30. Moses' face was radiant and the people were afraid to come near him. And the people who were charging Stephen had the same fear. They didn't care. They still pursued him. But they knew what they were facing and they couldn't stand up against it. The end of Stephen's defense is in verse 52. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. Oh, I have obeyed the law, Sanhedrin. You have not obeyed the law. And the verdict. Verse 54, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. Verse 57, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him and they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Guilty for a crime he did not commit Guilty for the crime that the people who stoned him, who killed him, are committing. And so Stephen dies. I'm sure... that Stephen had reason to die with such confidence 
verse 59, while they were stoning him, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. You know where that confidence came from? It was the words of Christ himself in Luke 21. They will lay hands on you and they will persecute you. They will deliver you to synagogues and prisons and you will be brought before kings and governors and all on account of my name. This will result in your being witnesses to them. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist. There's that word again. And contradict. They can't do it. Because it's true. And it's demonstrated by the power that I am working in you. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers, relatives and friends. And they will put some of you to death. And all men will hate you because of me. But not a hair of your head will perish. By standing firm, you will gain life. So Stephen sees, as this is going on, that the prophecy of Christ is being fulfilled in his life. But it's more than just knowing that that prophecy is being fulfilled in his life and that it gave him hope. But you see, there's, in Stephen's mind, great dignity to his suffering because he knows that his suffering is him being identified with Christ who suffered for him. You didn't miss that, did you? In verses 59 and 60, as Stephen is dying, what was his prayer? Who does he sound like when he's dying? He says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Who does that sound like? That sounds like Christ on the cross. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Who does it sound like in verse 60? Lord, do not hold this sin against them. That sounds like Christ. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they are doing. You see, Stephen, in the midst of this terrible death, this unjust death, when he had done no crime, in fact, the opposite of crime, he was doing everything good. Here he is dying and recognizing that he has the privilege of dying, of suffering in the name of Christ and that all of his sufferings are identified with the sufferings of Christ and all of the glories of Christ will be his too. What higher privilege could Stephen have in this world then suffering and dying according to the pattern of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving witness of His glorious power and His law and His gospel, and then receiving the heavenly inheritance. The Lord encouraged him by opening visibly to him, whatever that means in verse 56, the heavens and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So Stephen saw how it works. He saw suffering and then glory as the pattern for every Christian because of what our Savior's pattern was, which was suffering and then glory. They laid the clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. You lay the clothes at the feet of the one who is most directly responsible for this stoning for making the decision to actually go forward with this punishment. Saul, who what? Becomes Paul, who becomes the apostle to the Gentiles, who becomes the, the reason, humanly speaking, that any of us are here today at all with the knowledge of Christ and the message of salvation and the power of Christ at work in us and the glorification coming in our lives. Because Stephen was used as a witness to his persecutor, 
a witness that would resonate deep in the heart of Saul until the Lord would make him alive and cause him to see that he was fighting on the wrong side. You know, it is fascinating to think about Saul being the one who wrote later in Romans 8. Saul, the one who wrongly condemned Stephen to death. Writing later to the people of God in Romans 8, If God is for us, who can be against us? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Think about that. The man who condemned the Christian thinks back later in his life and says, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? You know, when I condemned Stephen, was I really bringing a charge against him? You know what? No, because Christ was identifying Stephen with his own sufferings to identify him with the glories that come, and he was identifying Stephen with the sufferings of Christ so that I would be brought to faith and that Stephen would be rewarded by God's grace for his faithfulness in the end. It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Paul looks back later and says, you know, I condemn this guy, but I I didn't condemn anything. I could not touch Stephen's clear conscience before the Lord. Sure, there's a verdict, there's a death penalty. It doesn't have the last say. Trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. We face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, but in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. I am convinced, Paul says later, that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, the present, the future, nor powers, nor height or depth, nor anything else in all creation will separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Stephen knew it when he was dying. This is what this story means for us this morning. We said it last week that maybe none of us will have to face death for our obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe some of us will. Uh, But the pattern of God's people in this life is suffering and glory. But all of our outward circumstances now, all of our sufferings and trials, and may they be persecutions for the faith, or may they be going along under the common curse in this life, are identifying you with Christ your Savior who suffered and then was raised to glory. So the end of the story is not the death of Stephen. The end of the story is not our sufferings day by day. Not our difficulties. The end of the story is the power of Christ receiving us at last into heaven and then one day glorifying us, raising us from the dead in the glorification. That is our end. And God will be faithful to you through all of your trials and sufferings as He was faithful to Stephen. And to that, all God's people said, Amen. Let us pray. Father, we praise You and thank You that You have redeemed us and given us a clean conscience which nobody can take away. And that no matter what kind of suffering we face, whether it be unjust persecution for our faith, whether it be alienation for the sake of godliness, whether it be suffering that is caused by any sins against us or terrible terribly difficult providences that you send our way in this life. Whatever it is, Lord, we know that we are never condemned 
And uh, none of this has the final say. But that you graciously identify us with Christ. And that our sufferings will only uh, serve ultimately to be a measure of the great glories which are revealed in us. Sustain us, Lord, in the meantime, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen.